Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to A Clip of Memory, a song by Molly Morgan, formerly of Canton, but now lives in Columbus. Molly Morgan is our featured musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about her and let you listen to the rest of that song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Well, 42 years ago, Elizabeth Andes took her last breath. 42 years ago. Oh, wow. It was late December 1978. Six days earlier... The 23-year-old had collected her degree in fashion merchandising from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Three days earlier, she was in Cleveland celebrating Christmas with her family. But Beth had to cut her winter break short and return to Oxford. She had her first big job lined up at a downtown Cincinnati department store, and it was time to move. She needed to pack. Beth lived at the Candlewood Terrace, in Oxford, near the Miami U campus. She shared the apartment with her boyfriend, Bob Young, and another couple, Sue and John. It was a one-semester deal. Since they were graduating in December, they needed an apartment close to school, walking distance from Beth's job at the Red Ox Delicatessen, and a place that didn't require a year-long lease. Candlewood Terrace fit the bill. Beth was born to Shirley and Charles Andes. She was the second of four children. She grew up with her siblings outside Canton and graduated from Glenwood, the predecessor to today's Glen Oak High School. Bob Young was born to a pair of school teachers in Fairborn, Ohio. He was the middle of their three kids, loved sports, and played for Miami U's football team. Beth and Bob met in their sophomore year. Young was drawn to Beth's free spirit and fun personality. They had taken a break from their relationship for a few weeks at one point, but returned to each other. And for the last semester, they had been living together in that apartment, a little fact they kept from both their straight-laced fathers. 
Beth was concerned about how they were going to maintain their relationship with her moving to Cincinnati and Bob, a geology major who had also recently graduated, ready to pursue his career. She hoped it would work out somehow. On Beth's last day, December 28, she was a busy girl. She bought herself a pair of new leather boots. She renewed her driver's license. She drove to Cincinnati to put down a deposit on her new apartment there and returned to Oxford that afternoon. She even got a ticket for speeding. She stopped at the office of her apartment complex to complain that a maintenance man had been in her apartment during her absence to do repairs and had left the door open. She also went to a friend's place to make a couple of phone calls. She complained to at least two people about that maintenance man. And in the early evening, she called her boyfriend using the phone at the Red Ox Delicatessen where she had been working. That evening, as 9.30 p.m. approached, Bob Young was returning to the apartment himself after spending Christmas with his family in Fairborn. He came back early to help Beth move. He pulled into the parking lot and glanced at the apartment window, expecting to see the light on. But it was dark inside. Perhaps Beth had stepped out to pick up more cleaning supplies, he thought. He went inside, expecting to maybe find a note from Beth on the counter, but there was no note. He went to the bedroom. The light switch didn't work. He fumbled in the dark to find the lamp by the bed, and light filled the room. Young saw a leg beneath an overturned dresser. He lifted the dresser and found Beth on the floor in a pool of blood. She was naked but for a blue knee-high sock on her left foot. Her feet were tied together, her arms bound behind her back. Something was tied around her neck, and a piece of cloth had been shoved into her mouth. Blood seeped from holes across her chest. Bullet holes, he thought. Young felt for a pulse, then quickly pulled a sheet up to her chin to preserve her modesty before running for help. The phone in the apartment had been disconnected in preparation for the move, It took a while to find a neighbor that was home, the winter break having all but emptied the complex. Someone finally answered the panicked banging on the door. Young was shaking, explaining that someone had shot his girlfriend and then used the phone to call police. Officers arrived just after 9.30 p.m. It was their department's first murder in a quarter century. So there probably don't have many on that have dealt with this Type of thing. I don't think detectives, right? I don't think so. Yeah. And I think as the story moves on, you're going to find that probably was likely the case. Oh boy. Investigators found blood in the bed. It appeared the attack started there before ending up with Beth on the floor. They found a pair of bloody sewing shears. The holes in her chest and neck hadn't been caused by bullets. The coroner will determine Beth had been strangled and then stabbed 20 times while her blood was still pumping. She didn't appear to have been raped, but claw marks on her thighs suggest someone might have tried. A few years ago, the Cincinnati Enquirer did an entire podcast series on this case. It's called Accused, and my research comes mostly from that. It's even been made into a book now. Reporter Amanda Hunt focused on the police investigation, re-interviewed people throughout the case, 
and ultimately try to determine if police had targeted the wrong man. I actually listened to that podcast before we even started this podcast. Did you? It's really good. And the reason she was questioning if police had targeted the wrong man was because from the start, police had targeted only one man, Bob Young, the boyfriend. Significant others are almost always the first to be suspected, so it wasn't surprising the police wanted to spend some time with Young. They took him into custody immediately and interrogated him for the next 15 hours. At four in the morning, while he was still flush with emotion at having discovered Beth's body less than seven hours earlier, he was asked to take a polygraph test. Oxford Police Lieutenant Richard Carpenter told him he failed. They gave him a second test. He was told he failed again. Before the sun rose, Carpenter had accused him of murder. Then he left the room, and Butler County Prosecutor John Holcomb took over the interrogation. Holcomb was an intimidating figure who some described as a bully and a brute. A Cincinnati Enquirer story once described him as a diamondback rattlesnake. In the 15th hour of his interrogation, Young confessed, sort of. He will later say he was answering hypothetical questions police were asking him, such as, if you were to find her in this situation, what would you have done? His answers were written down by someone else. At some point, someone typed up a confession, slid it over to him, and he signed it. He was scared, exhausted, grieving, They wouldn't allow him to see his parents. He just wanted it to end, he would later say. He never asked to talk to a lawyer. That afternoon, less than 24 hours after police had arrived at that apartment, they announced to reporters they had solved the case. When Young was allowed to see his father, his father asked if he'd killed Beth. He said, no, I didn't. His father never asked him again. They hired Matthew Crehan, a defense lawyer who had worked with the FBI before going to law school. Crehan was suspicious of the confession immediately. Some things Young confessed to didn't even happen. And I'm going to explain more about that when we get to the trial. Crehan also offered police the names of a few other men to look at, starting with that maintenance man who Beth accused of leaving her apartment unlocked. The man, he was 24 years old then, told police there was no way that he hadn't locked that door. Records show the maintenance man had been in the apartment three times the week before Beth's death. Enough, Beth said. She hand-wrote a note telling the man to stay out of her apartment until she moved. Police interviewed the maintenance man once, the day after Beth's murder. The day after that, he moved to Las Vegas and was never questioned again. Young's lawyer also told police to look at Andy's boss at the deli where she worked. The boss called police to say they should know he had been in her apartment the day before Beth was killed. He said Beth invited him over, that they smoked a couple of joints, drank some wine, watched a movie on TV while Beth did her packing. Police interpreted the visit as, quote, somewhat romantic in their reports, as if suggesting jealousy could have been a motive for Young to kill his girlfriend. This was a revealing incident to people interviewed by Amanda Hunt at the Cincinnati Enquirer three years ago. People who worked with Beth and that boss said he had a big crush on Beth, but the feeling was not mutual. 
Beth rejected his advances, usually quite firmly and sometimes even a bit heartlessly. Beth and another co-worker even pledged to walk each other home on nights that boss was working. They said it made no sense that Beth would invite him over to smoke pot and hang out. Interestingly, the coroner's report noted there were no drugs in Beth's system. Here's the other odd thing. When the inquirer asked Bob Young and Sue, the other woman who lived in the apartment with them, about that boss, neither of them had ever heard this story before. Beth had never mentioned such a visit to them, and the police had never revealed a man had called to reveal that visit. The deli boss was never called to testify at trial. Another person the defense lawyer Crehan directed police to was a man who didn't know Beth, but he knew Bob Young. The man was 30 years old, gay, and confessed his love for Bob Young a few days after Young was arrested for the murder of Beth. He became obsessed with Beth's murder, asking Bob if he could share theories about the case. He even tracked down the neighbors whose phone Bob had used when he called police that night. And then this creepy moment. He bought Young a gift, a pincushion that was drizzled with something red, like a bloody stain. Was that a reference to Beth's career in fashion and her murder by sewing shears? Young ordered him out of the house. Later, some wondered if that pincushion might have been a trophy taken from Beth's own sewing basket, the same basket that had held the murder weapon. Police talked to the man briefly, but never took a formal statement, nor spoke with him again. The podcast accused concluded police downplayed some significant leads back in 1978. One was the fact that Andy's wallet was missing, a new leather billfold given to her as a Christmas present by Young's parents. Did someone steal it? Could Beth's death have started out as a robbery? And they found police didn't even bother to speak to some people who obviously might have had information to share. Police never once sought to talk to the other man who lived in the apartment with Beth, Bob, and Sue. His name was John, and he was in Colorado for the holidays when Beth's murder happened. He flew back to Ohio for the funeral, but later said he had never been contacted by police. Police thought they had solved this case in a day. Jurors disagreed. Young's criminal trial took place in 1979. The prosecution's theory was that he and Beth were breaking up, got into a fight, and Young accidentally choked her in a fit of rage. To conceal the deed, he undressed her, stabbed her, and tied her up to make it look like someone with a sexual motive had attacked her. But at the trial... Nobody testified that Young had even the slightest temper. Another key point made by the defense was that confession Young had signed. His story, as I said earlier, did not match the facts of the case. The confession said he'd strangled her with a scarf and tied her limbs with hose, but she had been strangled with a bathrobe belt and her limbs were tied with shoelaces. And Young didn't tie her up after she had been stabbed, as his confession said. She had been bound while alive and then stabbed, according to the autopsy. Interrogators wanting to pull a confession from him simply moved too fast, defense attorney Crehan said. For heaven's sake, police were still in the apartment processing the scene when Young was signing 
a confession whose details would be disproved the very next day. There was also a problem with the timeline. A gas station witness put Young 68 miles from Oxford at 8 p.m. That was on his drive from Fairborn back to the apartment. Police arrived at the apartment at 9.32 p.m. Keep in mind, this was an era when Ohio's highest speed limit was 55 miles an hour. That left just 90 minutes for Young to drive 68 miles, get into an argument with Beth, kill her, stage the crime scene, clean himself up from the blood that no doubt would have been left on him from 20 stab wounds, run through the complex trying to find a neighbor that was home, and wait for the police to arrive. The jury agreed it just didn't seem possible. Young was found not guilty. The next year, Beth's parents brought a $3 million wrongful death civil suit against Young, believing the police must have been right. But Young won again. The jury found him not liable. After that, police lost the evidence in the case. It was obvious to many that they thought they had their man and they weren't interested in looking elsewhere. The inquirer found a courier had picked up the items in the late 80s from the federal courthouse in Cleveland, but no one knows where they ended up after that. Gone were the scissors that killed Elizabeth, the bathrobe sash, shoelaces, and scarf used to tie and strangle her, and the scrapings from beneath her fingernails. The courier himself couldn't be asked. He was killed in Iraq in 2007. In later years, Beth's family had a change of heart and began to question whether police had done all they could. They had learned enough to rethink their belief in Young's guilt. They repeatedly asked for Beth's case to be reopened, but police told them they had the right guy. They just couldn't get the conviction. After two acquittals, Young asked for the case to be sealed to help him get on with his life. A seal, for instance, meant Young could legally say on a job application that he had never been arrested. In some ways, a seal is if the trial had never happened, but it doesn't mean the crime didn't happen. And like Beth's family, Young made sworn statements imploring police to continue the investigation. They didn't. Well, let's bring on tonight's armchair detective to help us talk this out. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Well, tonight with us is Laura Goforth from Westchester, Ohio. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thanks for being with us tonight. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? 
I'm a Miami graduate. How appropriate. Like you. I'm sorry. Yes. And I'm an internal auditor with a hospital group in Dayton. Oh, okay. What year did you graduate from Miami U? 99. So that's about 21 years after Elizabeth died. Okay. Yeah. Do you think it had changed very much since then or do you think it was? Yeah, there's, yeah, some things have changed and some things haven't. Yeah, I was looking at the map where she lived. I was thinking was down by Walmart, but Walmart wasn't there at the time she was there and it's since moved. But I was looking at the kind of map of where she was and where she worked and I've walked the streets at midnight coming home from group projects and didn't think about it a second time. Probably felt perfectly safe. Yes. Well, let's talk about Bob Young first so we can put that aside because, boy, the the accused podcast really had some interesting evidence that really would have supported him not being responsible. What do you think of Bob and, and the evidence I can see how they went to towards him. I mean, obviously, it's almost always the family member or the boyfriend. Right. But when I go through theirs, I mean, there's no other evidence that's there. And especially when they talk about how he drove from Fairborn down to Oxford. I made that drive trying to get to football games and from work, and it is not a quick drive. I'm, there's so many traffic lights and there's so much to slow you down that I can see it taking 20 minutes longer, more than 15 minutes shorter. Yeah. Yeah. I, and not just the drive, but for the circumstances to have, once you get there, then you have to get in a fight and you have to do, you know, the yeah. killing and the staging and the cleaning of yourself. I mean, there's just so much, that yeah. you have to add to that. It it just, obviously, the jury didn't think so either. No. Or the civil ju- jury either. Right. Exactly. He was acquitted twice. Yeah. So let's go through the three possible suspects that the defense attorney wanted the police to look at. The first yeah. one, um, the maintenance man. What are your thoughts on that one? You know, I just, I didn't really spend that much time it just seemed very it convenient but I mean yeah she he didn't lock the door but that just is something that happens in passing and I just didn't see how he would come back and kill her over something that honestly like he might be very careful about locking the door but it's such a minor thing that I can just see him kind of pissing it off like, yeah, whatever, that, you know, girl got mad at me. And I just don't see that provoking him into a murderous rage. And it's not much of a motivation. Yeah. And he seemed to, you know, have not, I mean, he evidently had some issues for a while, but, you know, he's not killed anyone again. I would expect somebody like that to have, gotten arrested at least some point later. Yeah. The one thing that made me curious about him was his moving to Las Vegas immediately afterward. But he did tell somebody that that move had been planned, that his 
His brother needed somebody to look after his kids and so that there had been a reason for that. And there seemed to be some evidence, you know, police followed up and and did think that that was probably true. Yeah, it just, it would be convenient, but it just didn't make sense to me that he would have enough reason to do it. So let's go to the second guy, the boss at the deli. Yeah. I'm getting weird vibes about this one. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, there's something about it. And when they, he said she came to make a long-distance phone call at his house, but yet she had already made a phone call at someone else's house. I mean, that was really weird. So let me expound on that because I actually did not include that in the story. But you're referencing that he also told police after they were done hanging out that night, he went home and then she showed up at his house and said, I need to use your phone to make a call. But other people said, well, that's weird because she had been using the phone of a closer friend who was gone. She had a key to that apartment and she had already been going in to use their phone. So there was no reason for her to drive all the way to her boss's house to use that phone. So yeah. that was weird. And the other weird thing about, I mean, this is these are the kinds of things you say if you want to make sure police understand why your fingerprints are in a place. I better call yeah. them and tell them I had a reason for being there. But everybody who knew them said no way would she have invited yeah. him to hang out. Yeah, I... I was wondering if he did show up at her apartment because, you know, somebody had said that he wouldn't have fooled around with an employee, but she's now quit her job there. She's no longer an employee. I'm wondering if he showed up to try and make that pass at her and, you know. Maybe she had a lapse in judgment and invited him in. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could kind of see. It was odd because the TV was in the bedroom and you don't necessarily just randomly invite people, you know, into watch TV in your living room is one thing. You know, there's a reason there's the term Netflix and chill now. You, you don't necessarily do that. And I right. could see her sort of nervously packing if he did show up there, just trying to avoid, you know, sitting down on the bed with him. Yeah, so let me expound on that just a little bit for our listeners. Pictures of the apartment taken after the murder showed the TV was in her bedroom. So if he was right and he was watching TV with her, they would have had to been in the bedroom, which even made it more unlikely that this had happened because he creeped her out. They didn't think she would have invited him over to begin with, let alone, let's watch TV in my bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. That was, it's an odd story. Yeah, it really is. And especially when Bob, the boyfriend and Sue, the girlfriend who lived in the apartment, said she had never mentioned that she had called them both to complain about that maintenance man and share all the details of her day with them. And it never mentioned the night before her boss had come over to hang out. They, They just didn't see that as being likely. Yeah. So suspect number three, the um, gay guy who was a, had a crush on Bob Young. What do you think about that one? 
honestly, he's the most likely suspect to me. And because it seems like he had a rather unstable history and just, he tried, I mean, I don't know if that was in the script, but he tried to give Bob a pin cushion that was possibly blood stained. Yes. It was so creepy. And also I would love to test that for DNA, but I, again, what would Bob have done said, Oh, this random guy gave me this pin cushion with my girlfriend's blood on it. Like that probably wouldn't have turned out too well for him, but it was just so bizarre. And then that gift was in such poor taste. And if only they kind of wish he would have kept it because they're wondering now if that pincushion might have been from her actual sewing basket. Yes. Yes. That's weird. That is really weird. I didn't get into the details of that. I really, if people are interested in this case, I really recommend going to listen to to Accused, the podcast. But they go into a little bit about this man's background and his circumstances that kind of connect him to another murder or two, just, you know, him being yeah. in, in that, you know, in that circle. And so there was even more reason that, that just made him seem a little suspect. Yeah. And then I listened to it too. He showed up at the apartment where of the neighbors and really creeped out the guys who lived there. Oh, yeah. Talking crazy stuff. I mean, why would you do that? Well, he clearly had some mental problems. And, you know, it's quite possible it's the mental problems that may had him, you know, acting this way and and not the murder. But I'll tell you, I think the defense attorney came up with three really good, you know, possibilities there. Yeah. What do you think about yeah. the police and the way they just totally dismissed everything except Bob Young? I mean, how does it benefit anybody to be that laser focused on one person? Yeah, I mean, and I think they talked about the fact too that there is still some, and I live in Butler County, so I have the utmost respect for our law enforcement. But it seems even still that they're not willing to go forward and, you know, put some of the evidence in and see what happens. You know, why not look forward to it when the criminal trial and the civil trial found him innocent? I don't understand how they can consider the case closed if there's not evidence that we don't know about. Well, they have one very big problem, and that is they apparently didn't care enough to keep track of the evidence. Yeah. And all that evidence is gone. You know, when you have stuff that happens like that, it's almost like a police cover-up type of, you know, you can't help but think about that. Did somebody know the detective, you know, and the detective tried covering it up? Or just say, we don't need that. We had the right guy, but double jeopardy, we can't get him again. Just go ahead and toss it. Yeah. I, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't want to think that that happens, but I think it does. Yeah. Especially if they're that sure they had the right guy. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting because, I mean, 
if you watch even now, anything that happens in Oxford, the Butler County Sheriff comes in very quickly and takes over since they have the resources that Oxford is still a pretty small town. Uh, Where I live, we actually don't have a police force and the Butler County Sheriff provides a few deputies for us. And it's, and they come in and take over fairly easily to some of the more rural sections of the county. So I don't know. You know, there's also the question of that confession. Um, And I know he didn't write it out himself and he explained it later as saying, they asked me a bunch of hypothetical things, then they put these hypothetical things into writing. And after 15 hours, I was so tired. They wouldn't let me see my parents. I'm still grieving because I just found Beth dead. So I just went ahead and signed it so I could get out of there. You know, it, can can we, be, can we believe that kind of thing can happen? I know if you've never been through that, you want to say, why would anybody confess to something they didn't do? But they do. They do all the time. Yeah. It's, I don't know. What do you think about that? Honestly, my reaction coming out of it was to make sure I don't ever talk to the police without a lawyer present. Right. To have somebody to, yeah, I know on cop shows that always says you're guilty, but it's so, would be so good to have someone who's detached enough to represent you. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, absolutely. wouldn't confess, but I don't know. I mean, he was obviously under a great deal of stress. I think, I think asking for an attorney, yeah, some people will say, oh, you asked for an attorney because you're guilty. But boy, if he had asked for an attorney in this case. He'd have probably been out of that in 15 minutes. Yeah. He'd have been like, are you going to arrest him or not? You're not? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And those, um, those lie detector tests he failed. I, I did some research after I read that, and there are studies that show, you know, you can't give a lie detector to somebody who is emotional because you'll get false readings. And he had just found his girlfriend bloody and dead. You know, yeah. he, it's not going to work. No, I mean, he's at the place where he's the most emotional if, if he did it or if he didn't do it, I mean, there was no way to get a good read on him. Right. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. I, you really did your homework, and we really appreciate the, the insight you gave us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It was great fun. That's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com, for for photos, links, news clippings, and more on this and every Ohio Mystery episode. Now, how about some more on tonight's featured musical artist, Paula? Well, as you know by now, we like to feature an original song handcrafted and homegrown by a unique Ohio musical artist. Tonight, we're bringing to you Molly Morgan. She was born in Chicago, moved around a bit before settling in Canton, Ohio, but more recently has been living in Columbus where she's working on getting into the police academy. I told Molly, I know a lot of law enforcement officers who have bands on the side, so it sounded like a natural pairing for her. Uh, We need to get her on for an armchair detective. That's a great idea. Molly said her new song was written straight from the heart 
Music has been a dream for her since she was little, but it's only been as an adult that she felt settled and experienced enough to add it to her life in a real way. Here's what she said about her new song, Memory. I wrote Memory straight from the heart. It's raw, and I spoke what I believe everyone can relate to. Loving someone, but knowing it's not good for you, and having to remind yourself of that during the process of letting them go. So go find Molly on Facebook and follow her. She's hard at work making more music, and I'm sure she'll be keeping us all up to date on that progress. We'll put a link in the episode notes for you to follow. Well, I'm ready to hear the full version of that song. Here's Memory by Molly Morgan. Give it a listen, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.